Well, good morning. It's, uh, it is really fun to be here. I'm excited for our barbecue afterwards. Um, our series, if you haven't been with us, we're calling it Transform, Not Conformed. Uh, and it comes from uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So each week we're looking at a different um, area of life where we, uh, we want to be transformed by God's word. Um, so today's area, and I was a little sneaky in whatever the title is on the bulletin because I didn't want you to walk out the door. Um, today's area is politics. Yeah, yeah, I got gotcha. you. Um, so we're, we're talking politics today. We're, we're called to live differently than the world. And today we're asking that God would transform us by the renewing of our mind in, in this topic in regard to politics. Um, this, uh, the last presidential election uh, was kind of crazy. Um, and uh, afterwards, uh, uh, it, it was amped up before the election, but afterwards it, it, didn't, it didn't seem like it slowed down at all. In fact, in, in ways maybe it amped up even more. And I've never uh, noticed a time in our country where there's been so much division and so much uh, fighting um, uh, among people. Um, and it, it was... Uh, for months, I was just sad about how much, how much fighting there was and how, um, how people were treating one another. Um, it caused me to pray more regularly for our country. I've never been great at doing that. Um, you know, I've prayed uh, for our country when there's like events that, where Christians are supposed to gather and pray. I've done that, but I've never been great at just regularly praying for our country. And, and uh, how things have been the last handful of years has caused me to pray for our country. Um, it's caused me to pray for the capital C church, the, uh, not just the local expression, but, but the church Christians in America. It's caused me uh, to pray that this political climate that we've been in would wake up our faith. That, um, that it would wake up our gospel witness among those who do not know Jesus. Um, that, that Christians would take seriously how we live. That we would not only speak gospel words, but our actions would support gospel words. Uh, this election, as we all know, it, it has stirred up a lot of stuff. A, a lot of issues have come to the surface Issues on racism, issues on uh, how women are treated, immigration. I, I mean, the list goes on and on. I find myself reading and thinking about um, the homeless epidemic, the opioid epidemic, mental health issues, I'm, everything. Uh, I, I'm trying to keep up, and I don't know about you, but it feels impossible at times. Um, the, the news cycle isn't a 24-hour news cycle anymore. It's like 24 minutes. It's so fast, and I find myself that I, I can't keep up. Uh, what I read, I don't know if I trust it. What I hear, I'm like, there, I think it's maybe that's right. Maybe it's not. It, it feels like, like I've been facing this tsunami of, of news in regards to politics. Harvest, we haven't talked politics really at all um, in, in years. Um, we've had maybe some snide jokes here and there in a sermon, but, but nothing really serious. Um, so today we're asking and seeking the Lord, asking the Lord that he would transform our minds, that there would be a renewal of our minds in this area, that we wouldn't conform to the ways of the world. Um, and there's a, there's a solid chance, if you happen to be excited that I'm 
that I'm talking about politics today, which I don't know if there's any of you, but if you are, um, I might not talk about the thing that you really think I should talk about. I've wrestled all week, well, more than this week, actually, and I don't know if I'm going to get to your thing, um, but if you would like to talk afterwards, I'd love to. Um, if you want to set up an appointment for another day, like, we can do that. I'd love to talk with you, but, but I'm proud, I might not get to your thing. Before we get into our passage, and we are going to be camping out in, in one passage primarily, um, I, I want to say a couple of practical items. So with, with uh, politics, the temptation, really so many things in life, the temptation is to be one extreme or the other, right? So with politics, you're either way into it, I mean, maybe obsessed with politics, or you, you're not into it at all. You're not involved. Maybe you don't even vote, right? And, and, and we need to be somewhere in the middle. If, if you are really, really into politics, that's not necessarily wrong at all. We, we need more people. We need Christians that are involved. But I ask you, where's your hope? Is your hope in a politician? Is your hope in a, a political party? Or is our hope in the Lord, ultimately, is our hope in Jesus. If you're on the opposite side and you just don't care, maybe, um, maybe you don't vote, or when you do vote, you don't even think. You, you, just, uh, you just hear one side of things, or you vote based off of uh, other people's convictions and not your own um, by, by God transforming your mind. Wherever you fall, uh, whether it's this extreme, this extreme, or, or somewhere in the middle, we all need the same thing. We need the Holy Spirit spirit to transform us by the renewal of our minds. Scripture has a lot to say uh, about a lot of issues that we vote on, um, but there are all other issues that, that Scripture really is silent towards as, as well. But we need to be a people that wrestle before the Lord, that, that can stand before the Lord with a clear conscience um, in how we vote. So we're going to be in 1 Peter today, 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there, you can do that. Um, Remember, Scripture is timeless, right? So uh, what, what, what we read today doesn't just apply to people in America in 2019, right? This, this applies to people at any point in history and in any part of the world. Peter's going to instruct us, and, and I wanna, I'll break it down in, in two ways for you. The first is he's going to tell us who we are. And, and the second is he's going to tell us how to live. So who we are and how to live. Who we are. He says things like, he describes us as citizens of heaven, as sojourners, exiles, strangers in this world. He, he calls us God's beloved. We're, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is, this, this is who we are. And he, he tells us how to live as well. That we're to abstain from the passions of the flesh. That we're to keep uh, our conduct honorable among, among those who do not know Jesus. We're to do good works. We're to honor those in power. We're to proclaim the excellencies of God. And Peter does something uh, pretty interesting um, in this passage. So the, the passage we're in immediately, we'll talk about governing authority. We won't get to the next passage, which talks about the relationship uh, between slaves and masters. And then after that, it's husbands and wives. But Peter, his instructions here are one-sided. Unlike Paul in like Ephesians and Colossians, where, where he's talking about both parties and, and how you're to live, Peter talks uh, from the vantage point of the one that's most likely to be mistreated. Okay, he, he talks um, to the one who, who has no power in the relationship. Um, an unescapable theme uh, from First Peter is suffering. 
how to suffer well, how to suffer in a way that glorifies Christ. So we're going to jump into verse 13. Later we'll loop up back to verse 9, but let's start in verse 13. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So Peter tells believers that we are to be subject to human institutions, to governing authorities. And this is like, I heard someone say subject or submission is like the Christian S word. Right? Like, we do not like this word just naturally. Peter tells us, though, that this is what we're to do. And this is pretty surprising coming from Peter. Like, let's, let's remember Peter in the Gospels, right? If there was a disciple voted most likely to rebel against authority, it's Peter, okay? Uh, the, the authorities come to arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Whips out a sword, swings. We don't know where he's aiming. All he cut off, though, was an ear, Right? Peter was ready to, to rage against the machine, um, but, but something happened to Peter by the time he, he writes this book. He witnessed Jesus, who had power and authority, but kept quiet before his accusers. He saw Jesus subject himself to people that would kill him so that Jesus could glorify the Father, and, and so that for the same men that killed him, so that there could be a way for them to be saved. I think that night, as Peter followed closely, lurking in the shadows, he saw Jesus submit, and I think it transformed him. He tells his readers and us that we're to be subject for the Lord's sake. Now, this is easy to do when authority is honorable. Right? It's easy to do when you feel that, uh, that a politician or a person in power represents you. It's not hard to do when they make decisions that benefit you. But Peter doesn't tell us to be subject just when it's a good leader. Now, uh, maybe the question comes to mind, well, what are we to do when, when, when authority, when government tells us to do something that God clearly tells us not to do? Well, God's commands supersede the laws of men, the instructions of men. Acts 4 is clear about that. If, if there are opposing commands, we follow God, and we need to be ready for the consequences. We think of brothers and sisters around the world that are under oppressive governments, that, that are persecuting Christians. I think of uh, brothers and sisters in China where, where the government controls the, the, the churches and they, they have to, uh, uh, they're told what they can talk about, they're told what they can do when they can meet, all that. So, so much of the church in China, from what I understand, is underground. And they know that following Jesus, following his word, is a great risk to them. Many of them knowingly disobey the government and they're prepared to go to prison for it. Uh, if we think about who's in charge, when Peter writes this letter, it's Nero. He was not a leader to celebrate. Um, he was a nasty, nasty man. No matter how much you dislike a certain politician, uh, you can pick your least favorite president ever, didn't touch Nero. No, nothing like Nero. Nero had his own mom killed, okay? Seemingly because she called him out uh, over having an affair with a married woman. The story is, uh, is crazy. Nero had his people arrange for, for his mom to be in a shipwreck uh, so that, that she would die in the shipwreck. Well, mom was a good swimmer, and mom made it out of the shipwreck. But uh, there was a backup plan. There was an executioner there ready to kill her, and, and did. And they, they, tried to, they tried to make it look like a suicide. Right? They, they tried to cover it up. 
Nero led a massive persecution against Christians in the first century, martyred tons of Christians. Peter himself, we're told by historians, uh, probably about three years after the writing of this letter, was martyred by, by Nero's people. And yet Peter tells us that we're to submit to human institutions. Why? Well, verse 15 helps answer that. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is God's will. In this way, God will give us opportunity to be a witness through our good. And, and he'll go on to talk about this, that the works of believers will silence the false accusations. I'm sure you've observed this or felt this before, that many people are just waiting for Christians to blow it. They're looking for reasons. They're looking for opportunities to point to Christian hypocrisy. They're waiting for a Christian to stumble. They're, they're waiting for uh, the, the high-profile pastor to, to do something, to have an affair or, or in some way fall so that they can point. One commentator wrote this. He said, Our goodness will be our greatest apologetic for the gospel. Our goodness will be the greatest apologetic for the gospel. How we live in regards to authority, human institutions, government, um, no matter what the political climate is, we have opportunities to point an unbelieving world to Jesus Christ. Our goal in politics ought to be to glorify God under any, under any type of political power. And Peter tells us that our good, wills, our good works will point to God. No matter what the political atmosphere, no matter where you are in the world, there will be opportunities for good works. Let's jump back up to verse 9 now. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, that, possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I want to follow up on two things from last week's sermon, because as I was reading this and as I was talking uh, through this week's sermon, last week's sermon with, with some people on staff, I, I realized Peter here is helping us uh, not just view ourselves as individual Christians, which is so easy for us to do as Americans, I think. Like we, we just, we're so individualistic. Peter's helping us to see that we're part of God's body, God's kingdom, a, a royal nation, a, a chosen race. So um, last week, a couple of things I talked about was getting into Scripture. And, and I hope that, um, that if, you, if you've been intimidated by Scripture, if you've just felt guilty for not reading your Bible, I hope that this last week, maybe you jumped into Scripture, that that you tried. And I want to encourage you, even if you feel like you don't have the tools yet, and, and I would tell you, like, go, go find a believer that's been reading their Bible for a long time, or, or, or come to our men's or women's Bible study. Uh, come talk to someone on staff or one of our elders. We'll, we'll help you gain some necessary tools. But even before then, better than any tool, better than any schooling, any method, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who guides us, who illuminates God's word to us. So let's think about reading the Bible, not just as an individual, but, but uh, as a community, as, as a body of Christ. And certainly we, we do that here, right? We come together and we hear God's word. But through the week, 
We ought to be doing that as well. And this might mean that maybe you and a partner or several people, maybe during the week you study on your own, you read on your own, you come up with questions, things you notice, and then you come together and you discuss those things. And kind of like a rock tumbler, like you tumble it around and you let your thoughts, your beliefs, your interpretations get refined. Maybe maybe you do that as a part of the men's or women's Bible study, or maybe you've got your own Bible study going on. Maybe you come together and you study it right there together, not just on your own through the week, but you're digging into the Word together. And it's a time where where God God grows us in understanding His Word when we do this together. Here's what happens to me: I read a passage um, by myself, and I get stuck in a rut. Not always, but but a lot of times I'll get stuck in a rut. I only see what I always see there. I only see this thing that, that I've known for years or heard about years and years ago. And then another person, another brother or sister in Christ comes with gentleness and says, hey, what about this? And it's like these blinders fall off my eyes and I'm able to see what, what I've not seen before, what I've missed over and over again. And this is by God's design. He's, he's pushing us to come together, to be God's people together, even in the word. Um, I, I know... There's so much guilt uh, for Christians about not reading your Bibles. And, and, and that guilt is good if it gets you to the place where you read your Bible in a, in a healthy, God-honoring way. But so much of this guilt is excessive, and we just get stuck. And I want to encourage you to get unstuck this week. Get unstuck. Read Scripture with other people. Talk about Scripture with other believers. One other item from last week. I talked about sharing the the gospel, and um, I was really stuck in an individual Christian perspective. I neglected to think through and to talk about collectively the body of Christ being a witness. And and Peter talks about that in this passage. Um, Maybe there's someone, it could look like this, maybe there's someone that... um, that you just love, you want them to come to know Jesus, maybe a coworker, or a neighbor, and you, um, maybe they're not ready to come to church, maybe they are, but you invite them to, to be around some people that, that you know that love Jesus, you're, you're some people from your Christian community, right? And, and maybe, maybe you're just inviting them to a barbecue with a bunch of your Christian friends, or, uh, or moms, maybe you take, uh, take, take your kid to a play group and you invite them to that play group, or, or, or to play pickup basketball, or whatever it is, but you invite them to be around some of God's people, and there's a, a, a witnessing that's happening here, right? Common grace, just by being around God's people, they're experiencing uh, 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 grace, like the, the overflow of God's grace in our lives. There's this slight pulling back of the curtain and, and a demonstrating of who uh, God is as his people live life together. They experience God's community. And hopefully what's happening is there's a softening of the heart here towards God. And at some point, gospel words need to be shared for sure. Right? Someone's got to explain the gospel to them. But it's not like everyone in the group is going to do that. Right? Maybe, maybe one, maybe two, maybe several over years. But it doesn't diminish everyone's role in helping be a witness to this unbeliever so that they can come to know and trust Jesus. And I know many of you do this. Many of you, whether you know it or not, you do this. You're so hospitable. You invite people all the time to come and do things with you. One way that I think our church is really good at this actually is here on Sundays. You are such a welcoming people. I have newer people tell me that all the time, just how welcoming you are. I think it's nearly impossible to come in these doors on a Sunday, brand new, and get out of here without several people greeting you. 
and trying to learn your name. I heard recently that, that it takes um, a newer person, they have to have seven contacts with, uh, with people in a church um, in like the first month, I think it is, in order for them to stick. Seven people that, that, that need to come and, and not just say hi, but genuinely, genuinely try to learn their name. And, and maybe the next week you eat crow and say, hey, I forgot your name. But, but you're trying to connect with them, invite them to coffee or do something with them. Anyway, I think you guys do such a good job of that. Back to verse 9, though. So he says, you're a chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, a people for his own possession. This is, this is who we are language, right? This is identity language. We're part of God's royal priesthood. We are, you are God's possession. So what does he mean that we're a holy nation? This nation is God's people. It isn't defined by geopolitical boundaries. It's defined by God's rule and reign in, in the hearts and lives of Jesus' followers. As Jesus' followers, we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. We're citizens of God's kingdom, which I don't mean you can't be proud of your ethnicity. I don't mean you, you can't be proud of, uh, of the, the country you're a citizen in right now or the country uh, of, of origin, but that isn't your primary citizenship. You're first and foremost a citizen of God's kingdom. Right, so one implication here is that we actually, as believers in Christ, we have more in common with, with the believer across the, on the other side of the planet that we've never even met before, the believer in Somalia, than we do from the non-Christian two doors down from us. Verse 11, Peter, he, he calls us Christians, or he calls us Christians, he calls Christians sojourners, exiles, some translations say strangers. Uh, I heard uh, one pastor say he prefers the, the, the word refugees, but the point is, this is not our home. We need to make the most of it, but it's not our home. This is not our primary residence. Right? When you go on vacation, you don't bring everything with you. Practically, that would be pretty stupid. Uh, you, you bring what you need for the vacation. You probably bring a little more than you need just in case, but you bring what you need. And no matter how nice the place is that you're staying, eventually you want to leave it, right? Eventually you want to go home, or at least I've never stayed in a place that was so nice I didn't want to come back to my house. Uh, we are exiles in this land. We should long for our one day home in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth with God. He calls us a royal priesthood, right? We think of priests representing God to man and man to God, this intermediary. The priests were the insiders with God. We may be outsiders in this land, in our culture, but we are insiders with God. And I'm sure if you've been following Jesus for a while, and if people know that you're a Christian, that they, that you've had some people watching you. Right? watching you, examining your faith from the outside. And maybe you've experienced this, that, that one day one of those people, they come to you because they know you're a believer and they say, will you pray for me? Because my life is falling apart right now. My, my marriage is a wreck or my kid's sick or whatever it is. E even though maybe you've never had a real talk about Jesus before, they've been watching you and, and there's an opportunity because they see that you are an insider with God. There's an opportunity for you to proclaim the excellencies of God. Verse 10 says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Christians, we have been given God's mercy. We should be a, a people marked by the mercy of God. We should marvel 
that God has lavished us with his mercy. We should, we should have a reputation for being a people of mercy. So uh, I'm not so sure that Christians in at least the last handful of years on the political front are known for mercy. Some Christians, and I'm talking from both parties, from the, the third parties, um, there have been a lot of hurling of insults. Uh, we, uh, not all of us, but a lot um, have been terrible listeners. Um, I don't know that we've been dispensing mercy and grace that well. In the area of politics, would people say that you're a person of mercy? Verse 11, he says, beloved, and I just want to stop there. And this, again, is identity language. This is who we are. This describes you as a Jesus follower. You are God's beloved. And there are a ton of reasons why that matters. I'm just going to give you one. When you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're loved by God, the, the creator of all things, the one who's all-powerful, the one who's compassionate, merciful God, full of grace, the one who sent his own son to die on the cross for you, when you know that you're loved by God, the unpredictable and crazy world, which can be scary at times, doesn't loom as large as the God who loves you. We have a hope, no matter what is happening, where we're living. So how are the people of God to live in this world? It gives us two words, abstain and keep. Abstain, we, we abstain from the passions of the flesh. This word means that we put distance between ourselves. I, I don't know if you can remember when you were at the time in life when your parents gave you a curfew. I don't know how you operated, but if my curfew was 11, I was there at exactly 11, right? I, I, never, I never came home at like 1040 or whatever. Like I got as close to that line. I knew if I crossed that line, there's gonna be trouble, but I got as close to that line as possible. This is not what abstain means. The abstain means that we put distance between the passions of the flesh. We don't live like the world giving in, or we're not to live like the world giving in to our sinful desires. And this would take us back, if we'd been reading through this book, this takes us back to 1 Peter 1.14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Jesus' followers, we have to refrain from giving in to the flesh. Earlier in this chapter, he gives this list of some of the things of the flesh, malice, hypocrisy, defeat, envy, slander, and this list is not exhaustive. So one of the, uh, one of the ways that we can give in to the passions of the flesh um, with, with politics is uh, we can fling mud like so many other people are doing in our country right now. When we hear the attacks of someone else uh, on, on what we believe politically, how we voted, how we see things, it is tempting to just fire back, right? It is hard to hold your tongue. It is much easier and in the moment pretty stinking satisfying to just let it fly. So many Christians post mean, rude, often slanderous, and malicious posts on social media. Um, I've been off Facebook for probably about two years now. Um, it was, it, for me, it was just a waste. I, I clickbait, man, I'm going on everything. Everything would get me, I just wasted time. Um, uh, but, but I've been off for a, a couple years. Just the other day, someone knew I was preaching on this this week, and they said to me, Greg, you're so lucky that you don't see the posts on Facebook. And, and, and they were talking about political posts, uh, posts about our country. And... Um, I asked some questions and I realized they were talking about people in our church. 
And I didn't ask who, they didn't tell me who, um, but I, I just ask you, man, does the way you post, the way you uh, represent yourself on social media, does that represent Jesus well? If we were to hold up uh, from Galatians the list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, if that was our filter, what would you not have posted in this last month, or what would you have not, not have said? Two reasons to abstain. Our abstaining, again, is motivated by who we are. We're sojourners. We're, we're strangers in this land. This is not our home. We are God's people. The second, he says that these passions wage war against our soul. So let's zoom out from politics for a moment, and, and just to all of sin. Sin wages war against our soul. He tells us that, Peter tells us it's not just sinning against our bodies, but we're, we're waging war as deep as possible within us to our very soul. So we abstain because of our identity in Christ and because it attacks our soul. And all of us, I'm guessing, can immediately think of that sin or, or, or maybe a couple sins that in particular just seem to be such a battle for you. And you read his words, waging war against your soul, and you're like, yes. I experience that all the time. It, it could be anything. It could be coveting. It could be anger. It could be greed. It could be uh, alcohol issues. It could be porn. It could be, you know, fill in the blank, overeating, anything. Are you fighting that fight? Right? Are, are you engaged in that war battling? Or are you just giving up? I encourage you to keep fighting because as long as you're fighting, I would argue that you are doing a God-honoring thing. Obviously, your sin isn't honoring, but, but fighting that fight is honoring. It is so easy for us to get beat down by guilt. It's so easy for us to feel terrible about it and want to throw in the towel. But if you're trusting in God and asking him to help you fight, then you're on the right track. In this life, we will continue by God's power to battle sin, and someday we'll be totally free from that battle. Verse 12 it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Again, he's telling us how we live. He told us to abstain. Now he's telling us to keep, uh, keep our deeds honorable, our conduct honorable. Um, life as a Christian isn't simply a list of the things we should not do. Uh, I think the world believes it probably is. I think some Christians even view Christianity that way, that, that we have this list of all these things that we shouldn't do, and we're, we're adding to it as we read scripture, but there are so many things that we're supposed to do, so many things that are good, and too often we're known for all these things that we aren't to do, not for what God has told us to do, the really, really good things he's told us to do. I would love it if Christians in our country were known for good deeds. I would love it if, if we were known for being honorable people, if we were known for being a people of mercy and of grace, if we were known for being generous, if we were known for being excellent listeners, if we were known for, for being uh, a people that try and understand others, a people that serve. Peter talks a lot about all the good that we're to do in, in this book. I don't have time to read all those verses to you, but it made me think of Matthew 5.16. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. No matter what's happening politically, 
were to be a bright, shining light that points to Jesus. Peter isn't calling us to a list of oppressive things here, of perverse things. He calls us to a list that is good. It's a list rooted in God's love for us, and we want to be honorable because we are loved by God. We want, to, we want people to see and to want to be God's beloved. We should look so different from this world, not conforming to the world's playbook, be it politics or business or relationships or whatever, whatever area of life. So are we letting our light shine so that Christ is glorified? And maybe, maybe when it comes to social media or conversations, we, we say, well, what about, what about other people who are not being honorable? What about them when, when they get nasty? We know. We know that's not a license to be nasty. Like, do you let your kids get away with that? No. And yet adults, sometimes I feel like, like we're just stooping down to a level that we should not be anywhere near. Scripture helps us know what is to be honorable. A couple, a couple places come to mind when Jesus tells us to turn the other cheek. When Paul tells us if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give them water. Proverbs 21-23 says, Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. We are to control our tongues. James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. If that was, our, was just one guideline that we had in Scripture, just think about our relationships. Every one of them would change if we lived that way. I catch myself all the time hearing what I think is a complete thought, the whole sentence from a person. I, I make an assumption, jump to a conclusion, and then pounce on that only moments later to realize that there was way more to the sentence that I did not even listen to because I, I wasn't listening well. Listening, we, we need to try and hear and understand the people that are talking. This is an excellent way to be honorable among non-Christians, right? Because other people in whatever political party you're in, a lot of other people are not doing this. This is distinctly different. We also need to love each other well. So how do you treat a Christian that voted differently than you? Are you able to have rational conversations with them? Are you open to learning from your thoughts? Because all Christians don't vote the same. I assume that when you share your thoughts, you hope that the person you're speaking with is open. If we go back to this last election, there are people that voted on both sides. There are people that, that, that wrote in a candidate. There are people that before the Lord, with a clear conscience, they decided that the best thing for them to do was to abstain from voting. And I know not everyone voted um, really wrestling before the Lord. I, I know, uh, I mean, I've done it plenty of times where I, I just, uh, without really thinking much. But, but there are plenty of God-fearing Jesus loving people that voted differently than you with deep conviction before the Lord. And, and many of you know that, but, but sometimes... Uh, convictions that we have that come from Scripture, they mean so much to us. We're so passionate about them that, that we, it's hard for us to see how another Christian can't have that exact same passion when they've got passion for another thing that Scripture speaks to, too. And before the Lord, they've wrestled and they had to make a choice. Both of you had to make a choice. And this is where our citizenship matters, our allegiance to God over country, over, over party line matters. It means that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter how they voted. 
Don't get me wrong. You, you can love your country. I, I love that I get to live in the U.S., right? The handful of times I've been out of our country, I, I enjoyed those places, but I'm always so ready to come home. And, and so much of it is the freedom that we have. So I'm grateful. I think we all agree, though, that there's tons of room for improvement. There's a lot of growth that, that we long to see happen. No matter how much you love your country, our love for Jesus needs to supersede that. Verses 16 and 17 will close here. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And he sums it up. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God honor the emperor because of Christ's sacrifice because Jesus came and died for our sins if you've trusted in Jesus as your savior from sin you're a free person you get to live free we are free as God's servants and part of that is we're so free that we can be subject to authorities over us even ones that are not good and the hope is that people will turn to Jesus by the way that we live, that it'll open up opportunities for us to have conversations about Christ as people see that we live in the same land, but in a different way. He tells us to honor everyone, even those we disagree with, even those that maybe we think their actions are flat out wrong. He tells us to love the brotherhood, to love brothers and sisters in Christ, even if you do some things differently. Now, obviously, we have to be able to call out sin. We have to be able to confront one another with, with, with truth and, and love. But these are your people, right? These are the people that you will spend eternity with. He tells us to fear God. Right? He doesn't tell us to fear anyone else in the list. He tells us to fear God. We're not to fear a person in power, no regime, no matter how powerful they seem. We, they all submit to God. We submit to God. All will be used by God so that he can bring about his work in this world. And then he says, honor the emperor. Not fear the emperor, but honor the emperor. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. God, I'm so thankful right now um, that, that because of your blood, um, I've been forgiven of sin, Lord, that, that we, as your people, have been forgiven. We've been freed up to follow hard after you. God, I thank you for the convictions that you give us. I thank you for the, the passions that you give us, Lord. Would you refine how we live with those, God, how we live with other people, Lord? God, would we... Um, in an honoring way, in an appropriate way, be involved in politics? Would we place our hope in you? Would we vote with conviction? Would we have discussions that honor you? God, if there's stuff that we shouldn't say, we have us to bite our tongues. And Lord, we're so bad at that. We're so great at sinning with our tongues. We're great at, at sinning with our keyboards. Lord, would you grow us in that, Jesus? Lord, because we want people to come to know you. We want people to see who you are. God, would you help us to live in, in your good deeds? Would we do good? Not, not to be holier than thou, but to be a people that point to how awesome our God is, how loving and benevolent our God is. Would we be a people that live in, in your mercy, that dispense mercy and grace, Lord? Jesus, we love you. It is in your holy name we pray. Amen.